for cultivating progress across the South, for working to unconditionally improve the lives of all, and for the bold underwriting of every Gravy podcast, SFA thanks our visionary Louisville, Kentucky friends, Pam and Brooke Smith. What does it take to feed people in need? Pantries distribute canned and frozen foods. School-based free lunch programs now operate year-round. And SNAP benefits boost buying power at markets, soup kitchens. They address immediate needs. And increasingly, pay-what-you-can cafes have emerged across the country. Today, you'll hear the voices of good people doing good work. Listening, you'll probably ask yourself, what role can these people in these cafes really play in our nation's very serious hunger and food insecurity problem? I'm John T. Edge. And I'm Melissa Hall. We're your hosts for Gravy. 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 A production of the Southern Foodways Alliance, Gravy tells new and complicated stories about the changing American South. Our producer, Irina Zhorov, starts us off. It's a wintry morning at the Farm Cafe in Boone, North Carolina. A few days earlier, a snowstorm hit the town. It took the executive chef, Renee Bowman, an hour and a half to dig out in order to make it into work today. But already she's got three stews simmering on the stove. This has andouille sausage out of Louisiana, and then I've got uh, red beans. I've got local collards, and so this is going to be a collard, red bean, and sausage stew. Next, she boils noodles and whips up a bechamel sauce for macaroni and cheese. So what I'm doing here is I'm just going to melt the butter, then I'm going to add a little flour, and then I'll add just a little bit of uh, cream, half and half, and then I'm going to just toss in this pimento cheese that was made uh, for an event last week. Renee's job is much like any other executive chef's. She's trying not to waste ingredients to keep her menu interesting and to please her diners. She says the mac and cheese is always a hit. I hope some of my regulars make it in. And some of those folks, they're struggling. They're either slept in a car, they slept at the shelter. So they're going to be ready to have a warm meal. Farm Cafe is a pay-what-you-can restaurant. In Boone, a small touristy college town in the mountains, living expenses are creeping towards city rates. But a suggested price of $10 will get you a large plate of the day's offerings. If you can't swing that, you can pay less. If you can't pay anything at all, you can volunteer some time at the cafe to cover the cost. It's a model adopted by more than 60 similar cafes around the country. Maggie Kane, who's executive director of A Place at the Table in Raleigh, North Carolina, says her restaurant is emphatically not a soup kitchen. When I was going to soup kitchens with folks, I noticed that you, you stand in line for a good 20, 30 minutes, then you, you, go, you get handed a plate, you don't choose what you want, and then you just sit and eat in about five minutes because someone else needs to come in and eat. That addresses a need, she says. But A Place at the Table is providing a different experience. So here you walk in to a regular restaurant, a place that looks welcoming and is bright and is cheery and people are greeting you. You have a full menu. You get to choose whether you want a waffle that day or you want a salad. Uh, You get to have that choice. And then we serve you. We bring you your food and you get to eat in dignity for however long you want to. Maggie says about 80% of her customers pay full price or more. The other 20% pay less or volunteer for their meal. 
it's everybody's choice and no questions are asked. And that's a very important principle of One World Everybody Eats. That's Tommy Brown. He sits on the board of One World Everybody Eats, an organization that helps people start similar cafes around the country. He says at soup kitchens, there's a power dynamic, the server and the served, the benevolent and the needy. The cafe tries to remove that dynamic. You don't know whether the person sitting next to you is is, uh, food insecure or not. You don't know if the person who served you in line is food insecure or not. And it doesn't matter. Tommy says many spaces, from restaurants to social spots or even workplaces, isolate and segregate people according to their means. The cafes instead work to create spaces where people can come together. It is the community that gathers, has a meal together, regardless of means. The logistics vary among the restaurants. Some, like the Farm Cafe, rely largely on volunteers. Others, like a place at the table, have a full staff. Maggie says they get paid a living wage. Some function cafeteria style. Others serve sit-down meals. Some have a box for people to drop money into, others a cashier. The Farm Cafe also distributes meals and meal tokens at local shelters and service organizations. At about quarter to 11, Renee starts pouring the stews into metal pans and walking them to the steam table. I'm coming behind you, ma'am. Come back up. She adds some finishing touches to the soups. Okay, capers or not, capers or not. Yes. And gets her volunteer crew, which is a bit thin due to the weather, ready. Do you mind flipping that open sign around so people know we're in here? <laughs> Renee predicts a slow day because of the piles of snow outside, but some people do slowly trickle in. Oh, oh great. Are they all vegetable? Robbie McCann is picking up lunch for himself and his wife. The main mission is to, to make sure nobody's hungry. Because I think it's ridiculous that anybody would be hungry and uh, there is enough. And and also um, supporting local farms. Um, I'll take a couple drinks, uh, not not utensils. How much would you like to donate today? Thank you. I'll get this all wrapped up for you. Most of the people who come through on this day say they choose to eat here because the food is good, the atmosphere is friendly, and they support the mission. Ashley Weinkoff is one of them. Food is always good. It's always something that you probably haven't had before. Ashley recently graduated from Appalachian State University here in Boone. She used to come a couple of times a week, but now lunches at the cafe less frequently. When I was in college, I would get a good amount of financial aid money, so I would always donate a little bit more because I was like stoked that they were helping people that couldn't eat. But I don't donate that much anymore because I'm like, <laughs> I pay my own rent now, so... Most of the diners are eating alone. Claude William Clark occupies one of the smaller tables. I'm in a hard situation right now. I have, uh, my mom had a stroke about 10 years ago, so I took care of her, and so I spent a lot of time with her, and she passed away two weeks ago, so she kind of left me homeless. He's staying in his blazer. He stuck a foam mattress in the back, along with a bunch of quilts, but it's been really cold. To make a few bucks, he's been shoveling people out after the storm. At 52 years of age, though, the work is hard on his body. The cafe, he says, has been kind of a lifesaver. If it wasn't for this place, I, I would probably would uh, 
would have had to do without food or I would have had to stole for food and I don't like to steal because I'm a native from this town. He says he paid for today's meal with his labor. I tore down some boxes, did the laundry, folded some uh, laundry. That's basically it for today, and that's basically what I do is some of the out stuff that the girls don't want to do. He's eating the andouille stew. Everything's good, you know. I guess everybody goes through a hard time of life. I hope this is a, the last hard time of life I go through, yeah. Claude doesn't linger. He thinks he can shovel at least one more driveway, and it's at least a couple of miles walk back to his blazer. I'm Melissa Hall, here with John T. Edge. There are certainly challenges to running a pay-what-you-can cafe, and there are questions to ask, too. Listening, I can't help but recognize the theatricality of this effort. If this is indeed theater, is it also vanity? More a feel-good response to the moment than a long-term and effective solution? Irina tells us we're not the first to bring up that question. But first... Simmons Catfish calls the Mississippi Delta home. I'm Harry Simmons, and I've been farming catfish since 1976. Get him talking catfish, and he'll speak of the quality of what his family raises and the loyalty of customers. But what he really gets excited about is the opportunity his company offers his community. Most of my management, upper management, and people working at this plant, I went to high school with. So we all like this community. We like Yazoo County and Humphreys County, Yazoo City and Belzona and Louise. We're the largest employer in Yazoo County. That's what I'm proud of, that people that wanted to stay in this community could, where a lot of the communities in the Delta are struggling to keep their population. The next time you crave catfish, baked, fried, or in a stew, Look for Simmons Farm-Raised Catfish, a driver of the Delta economy. A list of vendors is online at SimmonsCatfish.com. For their commitment to quality catfish, their belief in the Delta, and their support of this podcast, we thank them. More than 40 million people in the U.S. lack reliable access to food. The South has some of the most widespread, consistent, and extreme rates of food insecurity. In Arkansas, Louisiana, Alabama, North Carolina, Georgia, and Kentucky, rates of food insecurity are higher than 15 percent. In Mississippi, one in five people goes hungry. It's the highest rate in the nation. It's perhaps because of statistics like this that Joel Berg can get a little cranky about pay-what-you-can cafes. A pay-what-you-can restaurants can be helpful at the edges of the hunger problem, but I hope no one believes that they're going to be a major response to hunger or malnutrition and poverty in America. Joel is the CEO of Hunger Free America, an anti-hunger advocacy and service organization based in New York City. Basically, he thinks the cafes are nice, but they're not a systematic solution to hunger. Many of the cafes have an educational component, And I asked Joel if, indirectly, they could open people to support more systematic solutions, like policy. He's 
not optimistic. I think we address policy by directly addressing policy, meaning that if we believe the answer is living wage jobs, we should advocate specifically, not believe that if you happen to kind of sort of bring together people of varied incomes to eat in the same place, maybe not even at the same tables, but eat nearby, that that's magically going to turn into a political movement. I mean, it's just like, you, you know, fellowship between white and black people in the South that was voluntary and encouraged uh, was wonderful and helpful, but it was no substitute for society pushing forward uh, major civil rights laws that made discrimination uh, illegal. He thinks that pay-what-you-can cafes are better than some service organizations, which can have patronizing undertones. Ultimately, though, he says their potential is limited. We want these easy, feel-good solutions, and it feels better to have a nice cafe where everyone rich and poor is coming to eat, and where that works, that's great, but we can't allow our quest for feel-good solutions to understand this is fundamentally a very, very limited model and no substitute for the bigger things we need to do. The cafe folks don't disagree with Joel. A couple of years ago, One World Everybody Eats invited him to be the keynote speaker at their annual summit, where people who run pay-what-you-can cafes go to network and learn from each other. His speech got everybody talking. Renee was at that summit. And one of the things that came out of that was to say, okay, we do need to do self-examination about, are we just doing this because it's good for us, because we enjoy it? Or is there something really happening here that we think is important? She says people like Claude came to mind, for whom the cafe means the only meal of his day. One hungry person fed is better than zero, after all. But she says she also came to see the hunger piece as secondary to building community. The primary thing she hopes to nourish is civic love and hope among her neighbors. The issue is how we look at each other as human beings. The issue is we're not seeing each other. We can't see each other. That's why we're not feeding each other. We're not taking care of each other because we're not looking at each other. So to me, it's central to get people to do that. She says often diners will strike up a conversation across the table, hear how other people live and struggle, offer kindness. Not typical restaurant fare. I've seen one of our volunteers who is a psychologist by trade, but loves to come in here and have a meal. I've seen him sit and talk to people who are homeless and hurting and just give them what would cost somebody else a lot of money in his office to talk about, but just because he's happy to be here. Tommy Brown, the board member with One World Everybody Eats, says it's a local response to a local problem. It is the community neighbor taking care of neighbor, neighbor caring for neighbor. There's been a resistance to other people telling us how to do it. But this is an idea that people can get a hold of and say, oh yeah, I'm going to come help out and uh, contribute and I can go in there and connect and get to know folks who are neighbor. Tommy admits that things don't always start off neighborly. One of the big challenges for many of these cafes is convincing landlords to rent to them. To succeed, they need to be in busy business districts. But landlords, neighborhood associations, even police officers think a pay-what-you-can cafe is not good for business. That's something Maggie ran into in Raleigh. Landlords turned us away. They thought we were going to be a soup kitchen. So when we were looking for a location, they said, no, we don't want to give to you. We don't want a homeless shelter. We don't want uh, a nonprofit in our space. 
educating diners, convincing people that everybody can eat there, even families, is another challenge. There's also the money. All of the restaurants are nonprofits. Successful cafes tend to have about 80% of their budgets covered by what they make for meals. The rest is fundraised. A place at the table in Raleigh has to raise 20% of its budget from private donors. At the Farm Cafe in Boone, about 30% of the budget comes from fundraising and grants. Then, of course, there are the enduring challenges of running any restaurant. Labor turnover, ingredient sourcing, rent. Everything that comes with running a restaurant is really difficult. And so people have to remember, we're a nonprofit, but we're, but we're mostly a restaurant. It ends up being a slow day at the Farm Cafe, just as Renee predicted. Some of the regulars hang out after finishing their meals. People greet Renee warmly and chat with the staff and volunteers. At the end of the day, the Farm Cafe feels like more than just a restaurant. It's familiar here, cozy. It's unclear how much of a difference it's making for the 18% of people who are food insecure in Watauga County, where the cafe is located. And community is not easily quantified. But something seems to be working here. Hey there. Another Tommy, Tommy Lee, recently moved back to Boone after about a year away. One of his first stops was the farm cafe. I'm, I'm going to stick with the soup for right now. Yeah, definitely the veggies. He gets a big bowl of the veggie and beef stew. Thank you so much. Yeah, I missed all the smiling faces around here. He says the cafe, it's people feel like family to him. Just a no-judgment zone, full of love, full of support. Place that you can go to and talk to some folks and get a meal and not have to, to worry about the BS. He says the mission and the work here feels authentic. They actually put their, their money where their mouth is. Everybody falls on hard times and if people don't have the means, they, they can still walk into a place like this and be treated like a human. I think that's, that's all anybody wants, just to be treated with some kind of dignity and respect regardless of um, whatever their circumstances are. So I don't know. I feel like it's, it kind of feels like a food church or um, well, you know, some type of good watering hole. This episode of Gravy was reported and produced by Irina Zoroff. Plug her name in the magic web and you'll see her beautiful photographs. Special thanks today go to who, Melissa? We thank Wendell Patrick for Gravy's theme music, Jazar for our donor music, managing editor for Gravy and all other SFA media is Sarah Camp Milam, Mary Beth Lassiter serves as our publisher, and audio engineer Charlie Kyer makes the show sound good. Visit southernfoodways.org to learn more about the restaurant industry's attempt to address food insecurity. That's in Mark Essig's essay, Half That Tater. While you're there, watch the Joe York-directed film, The Welcome Table. I'm Melissa Hall. And I'm John T. Edge. Thanks for listening, and thanks, too, for... <laughs> I can't do it, sorry. <laughs> thanks for letting us ladle gravy in your ear.